You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphians for Christadelphians and those seeking the truth of the Bible message. We're continuing in our series on the life of Christ by Brother John Martin now, and we're up to episode seven. This covers John 14, uh, John chapter 14, verses 15 to 31, and it's entitled Peace I Leave With You. We will be featuring this series on YouTube as well as our website as well in video format, although it will just be a still image um, relating to the subject matter rather than a video of John giving these talks because I do not believe that John was videoed. So I hope you continue to enjoy this series. It's been very enlightening and very helpful. Have your Bible marking pens to the ready and your Bibles wide open. Um, as we embark on this wonderful series on the life of Christ. Until next time, God bless. Well, brothers and sisters, we have been considering these very, very intimate discussions which the Lord had with his disciples, and very encouraging discussions they are too, uh, where the great emphasis has been upon uh, the love of his father uh, as it's been shed abroad through him and then, of course, the love of his disciples for him. And that's reciprocated between the father, the son and the, uh, those disciples who gathered around him. And though they would not have altogether understood at this stage all that he said unto them, brothers and sisters, it certainly must have been a tremendous comfort to them in the things that he was telling them. And just to, just to recapitulate the first half of those verses which were read, You'll notice we had the same reading again tonight because I want to finish this 14th chapter tonight. But we had a look at that occasion, of course, when the Lord talked about this love and I think, for me at any rate, the, the, the major point I got out of it in verse 15 was the fact that the translation there was not quite correct. Matter of fact, it, it has much more emphatic and, and much more appealing uh, way in the Greek where it says, if ye love me, ye will keep my commandments. And that makes a world of difference of that verse. As Brother Carter says, it's not a commandment, it's a statement. It's a statement of fact that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And all the reliable translations, of course, follow that rendition. And that means, brothers and sisters, that it's not the, the first duty, therefore, is not a concentration upon the commandments, it's a concentration upon the Lord. Because if we love him, we will keep those commandments. That the greatest duty is to learn to know him and to learn to love him. That's what he said to Judas who asked the question. He said, I will manifest myself to you. I will manifest myself. And he was going to do that through the word. So it wasn't just, brothers and sisters, the exposition of the, of the principles of God in that word. It was a revelation of a personality. The revelation of a man and what he stood for and who he was and who he represented. That we could relate to that. You, you can't relate altogether to words. You've got to relate to the, to the man that spoke those words and we've got to come to get to know him and to love him and we will keep his commandments. And I can't stress that enough, brothers and sisters. And so you can see the really, the great import in studying the Bible is to get to know that man. And we can't love anybody we don't know. There's no greater incentive to study the Bible than that. And Jesus said, if you do that, he said, 
then he would, he said, the father would send you another, another comforter. So there were th- several forms of the comforter. You'll notice in verse 26, uh, we made the point there, but the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, which the father will send in my name. So whatever form that comforter came, it was sent in the name of Jesus Christ. That just as the disciples and ourselves, brothers and sisters, approach the Father through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, so God reaches back to us through his Son. He becomes the mediator between God and man, and man and God. And so that comforter was going to be sent in my name, said Jesus. And so how did it come? Well, it came in three ways that we know of. It came, as he says here, in the form of the spirit of truth. So the truth is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I am the truth, he said. And the comfort we get through the word, through the spirit of truth, is that comfort which we learn about our Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit came, didn't he? On the day of Pentecost. And what did he come for? To show that that same Jesus, God hath made Lord and Christ in my name. So it was a revelation of God's purpose in him. And we learned in John John chapter 16, the very words of John 16 are taken up in Revelation 1 and verse 1. That Jesus said he would reveal those secret things. He said, I will take those things which I've learned unto my Father and I will show them unto you. And he says, when he cometh, the Spirit of truth, he will show you things to come. And he sent by his angel and signified it unto his servant John to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And the angel that came to John is expressly said to be his angel. The angel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So whatever form that comforter came in, it came in the name of the Son of God. And so we have that one rendition of that Greek word paraklesis in the, in the writings of John where he uses the word advocate. We have an advocate with the Father. And the real comforter, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as the word paraclesis means to draw near. To draw near, to be a comfort, to draw near to one, to stand there on one's behalf. And the real comforter is the Lord himself. All other forms of it were in his name. And so God would send, therefore, uh, those various ways and means whereby the Lord would be with them unto the end of the age. They were not left to be orphans. And this spirit of truth, he said, would come upon them, but they would know it, but the world wouldn't know it. And we spent some time, brothers and sisters, didn't we, just explaining in simple terms from Corinthians how that it's not a question of human intellect. It's a question of a person who's humble and who loves God and who's teachable. And we all can can discern those things of the Spirit which God has revealed unto us, perhaps not in their depth to the same degree one with the other, but we all know the truth and we can discern what's right and wrong and we can see things from God's viewpoint and the world hasn't got a clue about those things. And this is a wonderful comfort for for us because we can see things from God's viewpoint. We can test our belief. We can say, well, that's what God said and I can see that. And it's a wonderful comfort to be able to see what God is saying. And to know, as it were, that we we are following the spirit of truth. He pointed out to them, brothers and sisters, if he lived, they would live also. The acceptance of his life 
in the resurrection of the dead, when he commanded it into his father's hands, his spirit, and God raised him from the dead, uh, was the tremendous seal of approval that God gave to his life. And that seal of approval coming upon him through the resurrection uh, was an assurance unto all men that they would have life also if they were to be found in him. Because that came uh, with his own acceptance of his perfect sacrifice the crucifixion of flesh for all it stands for, swept out of the way and the Father raised him from the dead and gave him divine nature, the stamp of approval upon a man's perfect life. And he said, if I live, you will live also. Because as he shared our weaknesses, brothers and sisters, and he sure did that, he's prepared now by our faith to share his strength. So he told them what would happen, that when he was received, they also would have their guarantee that as long as they were faithful, they too would, be, would live. Now that was the early part of this chapter. We want to pick up the record now down here in verse 26. And he points out that when the comfort, he says, but the comfort which is the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you. Now brothers and sisters, a very important point here. But, you know, I think sometimes we imagine that the giving of the Holy Spirit sort of injected knowledge into the heads of the disciples. Well, it didn't. A very important word in that chapter, in that verse rather, and that word is remembrance. Why is that so important? For this reason, that the work of the Holy Spirit would have been totally ineffectual upon men who had never made a note in their minds of what the Lord had said because they would have nothing to remember. Now, never forget that. It's a most important thing. The Holy Spirit was not just simply to teach them in that sense, but to bring all things to their remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And I stress again, if those disciples had not gone to the trouble of listening very intently to what was said, even though they didn't understand it, when the time came, brothers and sisters, for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, it brought back into their remembrance and they saw very clearly what they already knew, but had never seen it in the light now to which it is revealed by the risen Christ. And that's a tremendous exhortation to us, brothers and sisters, to remember the things we read and if we don't read and we don't understand the things, we don't get into our head, we've got nothing to remember. Now just turn to John chapter 2. See what it says here. In verse 21, when Jesus had spoken about, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, it says in verse 21, but he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. What if they'd never remembered that though? What if they had, had gone right over the top of their head? But it didn't, you see. It stuck there. And although it was an enigma to them and they couldn't work out what on earth he was talking about, they never forgot that he said about the temple of his body. And when the time came, they remembered that. Now, I'll show you something else in this chapter where they didn't remember something. They remembered something and didn't remember something else, but which later on would have came to them, brothers and sisters, because they remembered half of it. 
You see, when he went into the temple and drove out the, uh, the people who were selling all those things in God's holy house and making it a den of thieves, you see what it says here in John chapter 2? It says, and he, in verse 17, or verse 16, and he said to them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now, would you notice something? You see, the question about the temple of his body, they remembered after his resurrection. But this, they remembered on the spot. Why did they do that? Because, you see, it, it suited their understanding of Messiah. When they saw him coming through uh, that temple in a, in a fury of, of righteous anger and scattering these hypocrites everywhere and cleaning up God's house, that was their picture of Messiah. That was their picture of Messiah. And they remembered that it was written in Psalm 69 and verse 9 that the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. But there was another half of that verse that they didn't remember. And we're, going to, we're not going to go back to Psalm 69. We'll come to Romans 15, brethren and sisters. I just want you to have a look at this context. And here's the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans. Just look at what he says. In Romans chapter 15, it says in verse 1, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of you please his neighbour for his good to edification. But for even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Brothers and sisters, that statement, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me, are the other half of the sentence. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up and the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. Now the disciples remembered on the spot that he would be the zeal of his house with eaten up because they wanted to remember that. That's what they saw Messiah to be. But they missed completely the other half which says the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. And Paul says whatsoever things were written before time were written for our learning, all of them. But they didn't remember that, did they? But when the time came for those things to be put together, they would have been seen, brothers and sisters, how those verses could be understood in juxtaposition, one with another. And they would understand, therefore, that they'd never understood before because they did remember certain things, didn't they? Luke 24. A memorable occasion when the Lord, of course, walked with those disciples on the, on the road to Emmaus in this chapter. But before that, we read this in, in Luke 24. And verses 5 to 8. And as they were afraid and bound down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? said the angels. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee? See, remember that, says the angels. Don't you remember what he said? Saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. So you see, brothers and sisters, how important it is for us to know 
Because if we don't know anything, we're not going to remember anything. The Holy Spirit was not magic, as men understand magic. Certainly it was the power of God above the ordinary. It was supernatural. But brothers and sisters, all it did was to help people to put into proper perspective that which they had heard and understood. And I tell you what, the Holy Spirit did a lot for the Apostle John. My word it did. Because he remembered that scene in the upper room, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Think about that. All the details of those discussions. Till they left the upper room, went down to over the valley of the Kidron, he heard the Lord in prayer and he remembered all those things. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. What if John hadn't been paying attention, brothers and sisters? What if he had never learnt those things? We would never have them in this book. But all those things were brought back to, into vivid reality to him to the forefront of his mind and he saw them all in their right perspective with the risen Lord and now we've got that record. And the great exhortation for us is that we're not going to, there's nothing, got, no good praying unto God for wisdom and think that God will flash it upon you brothers and sisters without any effort. He won't do that. It's the tucking away in our minds, the daily readings set out by our brother Roberts, the daily absorption of that word and you know you say to yourself, oh look I, I read that and I got nothing out of it. Don't you believe it? Don't you ever believe that? If you've read that properly, you may not be able to look up and explain that chapter or verse. But I'll tell you something, there'll come a day, if you've read that carefully, that you'll remember that. And you'll see it sometimes in a context you've never seen it before and you'll relate that because you've remembered it, because you've taken it into your mind. Never despise doing your daily readings, brothers and sisters, because you feel you're getting nothing out of it. Just read it over and over again. There'll come a day when you will remember it. But I tell you what, if you don't do your daily readings, you won't remember anything. Because there's nothing there to remember. So that this comforter was to come upon them. The Holy Spirit, and it was to bring everything back into their mind. That they'd ever heard of their Lord. That they could remember. And it would result, brothers and sisters, in some of the most wonderful writings of all history, in the writings of these men and their acts which they did in the acts of the apostles and in their epistles. Now Jesus said to them this in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So there was going to be peace given to them, brothers and sisters. Now this peace, you see, it was the common Jewish greeting. Whether you look at the Old Testament or whether you look at the New Testament, you have the expression, go in peace. That, that was a common greeting. You'll find it, for example, in the, in the Old Testament, one example of it, First of Samuel chapter 1, verse 17, and you'll find it in the New Testament, James chapter 2 and verse 16. If you're looking for an example in either of the Testaments, there'll be others, of course, but there's an example how it's used. Uh, James makes the point that there's not much good saying anyone, go in peace, and you give them not the things that, that are necessary for the comfort of life. In clothing and food, it can't be an empty greeting, brothers and sisters. It, it, it's not an empty greeting, so, but it was the formal greeting. It, it was the formal way that people, people greet each other. Like we would say, uh, 
How are you going? Whatever we might say, whatever Australian is as we might have, it was the way they said it, peace be to you. But there's far more meaningful here. Because this isn't just the ordinary greeting, said Jesus, this is my peace. My peace. Now the Greek word here, Irene, has the same meaning as shalom. And it doesn't mean, brothers and sisters, just to have a a sort of a peaceful disposition. It doesn't mean that at all. It certainly incorporates that, but that, that is not the total meaning of those Greek and Hebrew terms. Uh, the term shalom, as the Greek word also, has the meaning to be absolutely at one. So, you know, you might find, for example, we say that since the Second World War we have enjoyed peace, by which it means that we haven't been at war, but we certainly haven't been at one with the, uh, with the people of the world, or the people of the world haven't been at one with each other. Some of them can't stand the sight of each other, but they, they have what they call peace. It's got nothing to do with the peace of the Bible. Here we have, brothers and sisters, a far more meaningful peace. And what's that? Well, we know what it is. You know, in Isaiah 32 and verse 17, it says in your Bible, in the AV version, it says, the work of righteousness shall be peace. But the word work is wrong. You check that on your concordance when you go home. In Isaiah 32 and verse 17, you'll find that word means fruit. The fruit of righteousness is peace. So fruits comes, brothers and sisters, after a process and will always be consistent with what is planted or sown. So whatever you put in the ground here and buried out of sight, Whatever that seed is, it will surely be the same fruit of that seed. It won't, you won't plant an apple tree and get peaches. It just won't happen. If you plant peaches, you will get peaches. You might think that's simplistic, but it's a, it's a powerful thing. Every seed after his kind. And the fruit called righteousness comes as peace. Now, that, that, that's a biblical principle. First pure and then peaceable. Now, we know that, don't we? So, that's my peace. The Lord Jesus Christ declared the righteousness of God. And by that, brothers and sisters, we are able in him to have peace with God. Romans 5, let's have a look at it. Very clearly put when we are justified by our faith in believing in God's righteousness, we have peace and not before. So we read in Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. First, justification. Declared to be righteous. And after that, we have peace. Now that's the peace that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to leave his disciples. And you know, brothers and sisters, you can sail through the storms of life of the most hectic proportion, but you will survive if you believe that. You will have peace in your life, even in the most singular circumstances of adversity, you will have peace in your life if you know that principle. If you know that you're right, if you know that you're standing where that is right, and you know that your motive is right, 
and you go to your God in prayer, you have not a worry in the world. I tell you that right here and now. You've got that peace that no one can take away from you. And you can have the whole meeting around your ears. But if you know that, then you're at peace with God. There's no question of that. And you know, there's a wonderful way this is taught in the Bible. There's a wonderful way this is taught in the Bible. Now you look at me, for instance. Jerusalem. You might say, what's this got to do with it? It's got everything to do with it. Now you look at this. Here are three references. Psalm 122 verse 6, Haggai 2 verse 9, and Luke 19 verse 42. Look what they say. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now I don't believe that means just pray for the time when Jerusalem will be at peace. I don't believe it means that. I believe it means pray for a peace that is peculiar to Jerusalem which is the city of peace. It's a certain type of peace. Now Haggai says that God would shake the heavens of the earth and the glory of this latter house should be greater than the former and in this place, Jerusalem, will I give peace, says Yahweh of armies. Why couldn't he give it somewhere else? Why could not God give that peace somewhere else? Now it's got to be in Jerusalem. And when the Lord rode into that city, brothers and sisters, this is what he said. If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, that the things that belong unto thy peace, and he's talking to the city of Jerusalem. Now that's the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the peace of Jerusalem, it's got to be given in that place, and it's thy peace. Now they are peculiar references, there's a peculiar significance in that. That's not done just haphazardly, there's a reason for that. Now you just ask yourself the question, why is that emphasis like that about the peace of Jerusalem? Well, just let me just tell you, and you don't have to, I won't have to turn the references up. What's that peace? Jerusalem was known in the Bible, first of all, brothers and sisters, as the city of Salem. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 76 and in verse 2, Jerusalem is called Salem. His tabernacle is in Salem. His holy place is in Zion, says the psalmist. So it's, it's equated with Zion. So that the earliest name of Jerusalem was Salem. And the first time you ever read about it is Genesis 14 with Melchizedek. That when Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings, full of victory and the spoils of war, he was met by Melchizedek, king of Salem. And the record says that he was met by Melchizedek, king of Salem. And the Apostle Paul, picking it up, said, the Bible first of all called him Melchizedek, after that the king of Salem. So there's an order about it. So the, the, even the way it's said is inspired the way that it's put in order like that. It didn't say, oh, and, and the king of Salem came whose name was Melchizedek. Oh no, it says Melchizedek, king of Salem. First being by interpretation, Melchi Zadok, king of righteousness and after that king of Salem which is the king of peace Hebrews 7 says that so Paul says it's a deliberate intent of the spirit to put that in that order so the peace of Jerusalem is first king of righteousness and after that king of peace that's why you've got the peace of Jerusalem in this place and it belongs there it's exactly the same reason as Jesus said, my peace. 
and this is the city, brothers and sisters, of the great king. It was quite a, quite a revelation to me when, when I read that, and, and I, you know, I used to I love Anthem 4, we're going to finish with Anthem 4 for this reason. And, you know, it was quite a revelation to me to see the emphasis there and to line it up with those other verses and to see why that was. And I thought to myself, what a wonderful thing that is. So Jerusalem's not just chosen because God sort of has a love of a particular city. It's not that at all. There's a principle involved there. It's got to be given in that place because that principle is embedded there. And so we find, brothers and sisters, that this is the peace which the Lord Jesus Christ is offering, the peace of righteousness. And you know, there is no greater peace that can be had by the disciples of the Lord than to do what their Lord commands them. You know, brothers and sisters, it is so true. And you know, it, it isn't always either because you keep a set of commandments that peace comes. It's not like that either. It's because the very commandments that are given if they are kept, will produce peace. So it's not like, I'll repeat, it's not like God saying, do these ten commandments and I will give you peace. You see, it's by doing those commandments that we find peace. Because the, the commandments of the Christ are that we love one another. As, he said, I have loved you. And as he said finally, the Father has loved me. Now what a tremendous way to live your life. That you give yourself unstintingly in the service of your, of your master because you love your brethren because he loved you and because you know that the Father loved him. So that in are dealings with one another if we are gentle with one another, even when we disagree, if we're prepared to go out of our way, brothers and sisters, in the face perhaps of, of opposition and yet try our hardest we can to win our brother because we, we love him because Christ loved us and we know that the Father loved the Son and we're all in this family circle, we're not going to be worried at all by attitudes because we know that we're in the love of God and there's going to be a serenity and a peace about our life that's unbelievable. Not because we've merely kept the commandments, because that is the result of them. You put into the ground a certain type of thing and it'll grow exactly the kind of that seed. I mean, you, you, you take a, a simple proverb. A soft answer turneth away wrath. And it does! So, you know, you, you might do something wrong. It, it may not be a very big thing. Perhaps you'd make a mistake sometimes and the person flares up in anger swings around and abuses you. And you say, oh, look, I'm very sorry. I, I really am sorry about that. It was my fault. Please, I'm sorry. And they go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll stick it in the sake of the hand and away they go. And you got peace. Exactly what that proverb said. It did exactly what it said it was going to do. It's not that you did the right thing and God turned away the man's wrath. The very answer you gave did that, didn't it? So you put that seed in the ground and out of it came exactly what that proverb said. Now you take James. See how James puts this, brothers and sisters. He's talking in James chapter 3 about competition between brethren, speaking brethren, competing with one another. Who's the best speaker? 
He makes the point in verse 17, but the wisdom that is above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So you see, this chapter is about that supreme virtue where brethren are able to adopt a bit of humility and mercy and understanding and cool people down and, and, and produce a situation where there's peace. But he said, that's the fruit of righteousness. But when they sow that, they will make absolutely certain of the fruit they're looking for. They're looking for peace. So whatever they're going to do is going to be directed towards that end. They will know what seed to put in the ground because that's the product they're looking for. And so you see, brothers and sisters, Jesus said, this is my peace. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people that will be saved with the kingdom of God because of what he did. There will be people that were around that cross, doubtless, we don't know, but I don't doubt, and some of them were there on the day of Pentecost, Peter said they were there, and there were people around that cross that will be in the kingdom of God. 3,000 believed on the day of Pentecost. Whether they'll all be in the kingdom, we don't know. We're not the judge of all the earth. Uh, but the inference is that certainly some of them will. And they were around that cross, and they were probably among the jeering crowd. But they heard that man say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And when the time came when that all got put in, into juxtaposition for their minds, they were cut to the heart, said, men and brethren, what shall we do? He didn't curse and revile brothers and sisters and threaten them with God's judgments because of what they did. He prayed earnestly and sincerely for them in agony. That would have made a tremendous impact fruit of righteousness was sown in peace of him who wanted to make peace and Paul said he is our peace that's the peace brothers and sisters he's going to leave with his disciples but coming back to John chapter 14 he makes this point in, in verse 28 now just think for a moment before we read this verse what did he say back in verse 15 if ye love me, ye will keep my commandments. Now there's always a way to test our love and, and here they fail the test. He said in verse 28, Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye love me, ye would rejoice. Because I said I go to my, under my father, for my father is greater than I. Now there was a test of love. And he's got these men around him. He's talking about going. He's telling them where he told them where he was going to go. He said it back in chapter 13 and 14. He told them that, that, that he was going to prepare a place for them in, the, in, his, in his father's house. He told them this, brothers and sisters. He told them that he was going to be received up where he came from before. They all knew that. Now Jesus said, look, I've said to you, if you love me, you, you will keep my commandments. The guarantee of your keeping my commandments is your love of me. Now I can show you you don't love me. How? Well, if you love me, you would rejoice because you know where I'm going. Isn't that logical? Isn't that very logical? But you see, brothers and sisters, selfishness never sees that. So here's a person over here that can help me. I depend on him. 
I can't do without him because I need him. I do. He he he, he got to look after me. I def- he needs to look after me. Now this fellow over here tells me that he's got to leave me temporarily, but it's going to be to his great advantage and joy. And, and I'm very unhappy about that. Yet I profess to love him, but I, I, I'm unhappy because he's leaving me. But he said, if you love me, you would rejoice because I go to my father. What what a place to go. What a joy and, and what their Lord had done for them and the privations he'd suffered in life and all the sufferings that, that he'd told him he was going to, going to endure. Wouldn't, wouldn't you think, brothers and sisters, if they really loved him, they'd be happy for his sake? But no, no, no. He's got to stick around for me. See the point? See, it's, it's a penetrating insight, isn't it, in, into how people think. We never ever think about the welfare of the person who we depend on. It never occurs to us that maybe they need a bit of help too or that it could be advantageous if they had something in their life which would ameliorate the difficulties in their life that it might help us further. That never occurs to us. It's what they can do for me. That's an impenetrating insight into human nature, isn't it? You wouldn't be like this, he said. But you know this, he said, this, this also. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. He said, because I go to my father. My father is greater than I. Now you see, the other thing, brothers and sisters, that they never saw, there were two things they didn't see. One, they didn't see that, at, that their Lord was of such a, a nature, a character, that they ought to have loved him and absolutely been happy for his sake. Didn't see that at all. And the other thing was, they didn't understand that his exaltation of the Father's right hand was going to mean greater benefits for them because he wasn't going to his Father out of mere selfishness. Nothing to do with that at all. He was going to his Father for the express purpose of becoming their advocate. And he told them, if I don't go away, the Comforter won't come. Why wouldn't he come? Well, it's logical. Because he is the connection between God and man and man and God. And the Father, Father, it pleases the Father because his righteousness is invested in the Son to channel all benefits through him. Now we know that God channeled benefits to people before this. We know that there were certain things that God did for men, great things that God did for men. But now, brothers and sisters, the benefits are going to be much, much higher, much, much greater. And therefore the Father is pleased because of the righteousness of his Son who manifested his righteousness to pour that back through him. And Jesus said, if I don't go away, he won't come. So you didn't. You ought to be rejoicing for two reasons. Because I'm going to be made happy. And because really, you'll be better off. For my father is greater than I. And when he, just before he went to the father's right hand, he said to them, did he not, brothers and sisters, didn't he say, all power in heaven and earth is given unto me? Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you unto the end of the age. All power is in my hand. No worry. And now much greater blessings will flow because my Father is greater than I. Shouldn't that have thrilled them to know that? That their helper was going to be in a greater position to help? Never occurred to them, brothers and sisters, because the needs were but for the moment and little me has to be helped now. 
and I never thought of those issues. My father is greater than I. He found eternal redemption in himself, says Hebrews 9 and verse 12. And Hebrews 9 verse 24 says, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So he found it in here, in his own body. He found all that was necessary. The principles were all lived out. Flesh was crucified, spirit was uppermost, all found in here for the express purpose that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. All of that was done, brothers and sisters, for us. Could never have been done for us if he had not achieved that all in himself. But it wasn't done for self. It was a wonderful thing that happened. And they couldn't see that because of immediate needs. It's always the case. And in John 14 he told them in verse 28, you've heard how I said unto you I go away and come again unto you. If you love me you will rejoice because I said I go unto my father for my father is greater than I. But he says, and now I have told you before it come to pass that when it come to pass ye might believe. So you see, it was just like picking out the traitor, wasn't it? Like Jesus knew him, he knew him when he chose him. It's back in John chapter 6 he said I know that one of you is a devil so he knew all about him but he, he, he wouldn't go out of that room before he, he identified him with two, at least two of those disciples for the express purpose that when it happened they couldn't say that he slipped up that something was wrong that something had gone wrong with the father's plan when it all happened they said yeah that's right he said it would happen so there'd be no worry now the same thing here He's going to leave them. The Pharisees and the scribes and all the others can't come and say, there you are, we told you. You know, you haven't got a Lord. It was all a lot of hoax. No, they say, no, it wasn't. We know. He's told us. There's no panic. No need to panic. So Jesus said, I'm telling you before, but when it happens, instead of being detrimental to your faith, it will add to your faith. It will add to your faith. And it did. And they went out through all the world giving witness to the power of his resurrection. Now verse 30 he says this. You've got to be in a hurry. He says, look, hereafter I will not talk much with you. In other words he's saying, look, we've got to wind this conversation up. I've got to get going for the prince of this world cometh. In Mark's gospel it says the betrayer is at hand. He knew that they were on the way. They weren't very far away from him, brothers and sisters. He's yet to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a bit more to be done and, and the Lord can see the time is ticking away and he knew that the, all their machinations were now coming to fruition and they were on the way. The betrayer is at hand. So he said, look, we've got to get going because the prince of this world cometh. Who's he? Well, back in John chapter 12, here he is. Yes, they were the, it was the Jewish and the Roman authorities, but more so the Jewish authorities, brethren and sisters, the prince of this world. See, John 12, verse 31, he says, Now is the judgment of this cosmos, this Jewish world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. So there would be a sacrifice for sin, for the sins of the world. But the prince of this Jewish world would be cast out. There he is. First Corinthians chapter 2. Here he is, brothers and sisters. Here he is again. What sort of a person was the, or persons were the princes of this world? 
this is the ones that were going to come and betray him. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7, But we speak the wisdom of God in a secret, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. So there they are. So the secret of God, they never ever understood it. Matter of fact, Paul made this point, astonishing point, in Acts 13 verse 27, when he said this, he said, They that dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, who read every Sabbath day the scriptures of truth, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Such was the brilliance of the princes of this world, brothers and sisters, that they, they were over the Bible with, with, with a magnifying glass, every jot and tittle, just looking at it, dissecting every word, weighing every Jewish letter, all the jots and tittles in place and numerical values to get it absolutely perfect. And here they were, day in and day out, and every Sabbath day they were read there and they would listen very intently and so brilliant was their understanding that they fulfilled the very thing they were studying by crucifying the centre of God's purpose. What an incredible testimony of their intellect that was. Well, there are the princes of this world. And Jesus said he's on the way. And look what he said about him in John 14. He says he's got nothing in me. He's got nothing in me. That's actually a quotation from the Bible. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26, Daniel 9 and verse 26, And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off but not for himself and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and so forth. Now if you've got a marginal rendering but not for himself it says and shall have nothing. It's got nothing in me. What does it mean? Well you see back in verse 24 the 70 weeks prophecy, the, the 490 years that took to, to manifest our Lord and here Daniel is told in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city what to do. Finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. And they didn't have a clue about any of those things at all. For example, to finish the transgression, the time was going to come when God would no longer tolerate their iniquity. But they didn't think they were iniquitous. They didn't see that at all. The time was come when God was going to make an end of sins. He was going to make one sacrifice for sins forever and they never ever saw that. He was going to make reconciliation for iniquity and they didn't believe that he did. He was going to bring in everlasting righteousness and they called him a criminal and they crucified him as someone that was worth the worst form of death and they never saw any righteousness in him. Sealing up the vision of the prophecy, they didn't see him as the fulfilment of the Bible, they saw him, brothers and sisters, a breaker of God's law and anoint the most holy, they saw him as absolutely filthy and unclean. They never had anything in him at all. They never ever saw anything like that. There was nothing that he had no relationship to them one way or another. It didn't happen. And they found nothing in him either to accuse him. 
They never saw anything of those things in him and when they came to accuse him, they found no cause of fault in him either. There was nothing in him in every way, shape or form. But he told his disciples, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And pray God, brothers and sisters, that we've got everything in him, that we understand all those principles and that we don't, we don't know him, but what's more important, that he knows us and we've got everything in common with him. Pray God that may be the case with all our faults and pray it will never be that the Lord will say, I never knew you. I never, ever knew you. Nothing in me. But then, brothers and sisters, you have this wonderful comment. Verse 31. But that the world may know that I love the Father and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Come on, he says, arise, let us go hence. That the world may know what? That I love the Father? And as the Father gave me a commandment, what, what was the commandment his Father gave him? He said, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I from my Father. There it is. That's John chapter 10 and verse 17, isn't it? I have power to lay down my life and I've got power to take it again. I've got that commandment from my Father. And you see what he's saying? Here he's saying, here comes these people to take him by wicked hands and there's not a one shred of commonality between them. There's not anything in common. But, he says, but that the world might ultimately see the love of the Father. Let's go, he says, I'm going to do what he's told me. Even so I do. And what was that, brothers and sisters? I'll tell you what it was. To die for those wicked hands that took him to that cross and brutally put him to death. That's what it was. And if they couldn't see the love of God in that, they will never ever see it. And never ever would see it. That when the realisation would come upon some of them that what had actually happened, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, the Apostle says, you know, one will scarcely die for a good man. Or a righteous man. He said, you would scarcely die for a righteous man. For a good man, some may even dare to die. So you see, you, you might have a person, he might be upright man, he might be awe-inspiring, the way he's got self-discipline and the way he walks in the truth. Well, yes, you might admire him, you'd never die for him. You get another man and he's benevolent, he's kind and he's lovely and, and you really love him and you do anything for him. You might die for him, but you'd have to dare to die. You'd have to make it a daring act. But he says, God committed his love towards us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. And he says, come on, he says, that the world may know the love of my Father. Even so I do. Isn't that incredible? In, the, in that context, brothers and sisters, and he's been talking about the prince of this world, in that context, he said, the love of God will finally be seen that they're the people, among others, that he's dying for. That's an incredible concept, isn't it? Let us go hence. Well, Matthew 26 says that before they went out, they sung a hymn. Now, the word hymn in the Greek has a very similar meaning to the word hallel. Both words mean to be loud, clear and full of praise. It's praise that is crystal clear 
and loud that can be heard and understood. That's the meaning of the, of the, of the Greek word humnio, from which we get our English word hymn, and it's the meaning of the word hallel, from, which is the, of course the first half of hallelujah. So it's praise be to Yahweh. Let's be loud and clear in our praise to the Father. So when they went out, before they went out, they sang the hallel. Now the hallel, brothers and sisters, the hallel was a tradition of the Jews which they, the name they gave to the group of psalms that they would sing at Passover time. Psalms 113 to 118. And the Jews had divided these psalms up into five sections. This is how they interpreted them. The Talmud is just another Jewish textbook, as it were, of the law. And there were five recorded things they said in the Hallel. They were the coming out of Egypt, the dividing of the sea, the giving of the law, the resurrection of the dead and the portion of Messiah. That was how the Jewish traditions sectionalised Psalm 113 to 118 in what they called the Hallel. And you will see underneath I have put the significance as far as we're concerned. Deliverance from the bondage of death, baptism into Christ, walking in newness of life, in the likeness of his resurrection and joint heirs with Christ. Not bad, is it, the way they divided that up? Not all Jewish traditions were bad. There's quite clear evidence in the Gospel records that Jesus kept some of the traditions which were good, good interpretations of the law. And, and this was a wonderful thing. They divided up like that. That was the hallel. And, and the Psalms that in question, 113 to, uh, to 118, it was at the latter end of that of the feast, of which we're now talking about, they would have sung Psalm 115 to 118. If you look how those psalms, some of the major points in those psalms, brothers and sisters, quite extraordinary. <coughs> Psalm 115 speaks of Yahweh's mercy to rescue his people from death. Now this one I want you to look at with me. Psalm 116. You imagine Jesus singing this with his disciples just before his crucifixion. Just imagine him singing this. You know what Peter said concerning the resurrection of Christ on the day of Pentecost in his great speech on that day he said having loosed the pains of death. Okay? Well Psalm 116 and verse 3 says the sorrows of death compass me and the pains of the grave get hold upon me. That's verse 3. But verse 16 says this O Yahweh, truly I am thy servant, I am thy servant, and the son of thine handmaid, thou hast loosed my bonds. So Peter put those two verses together, didn't he? But he didn't, I don't believe. I think Stephen, rather Luke did that. Luke, you see, in reporting Peter's speech, brought two verses together. He brought verse 3 and verse 16 together. Having loosed the pains of death, or a combination of those two verses. And what he, of course, is telling us is that Peter would have been dealing in between uh, uh, with what the Messiah is saying in that psalm. Now you look what he says in verse uh, 10 of Psalm 116. I believed, therefore have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all bear the liars. 
I said in my haste, you, you know, brothers and sisters, that word haste in the Hebrew means alarm. And the word lies means vain. And Messiah is here. He's saying, look, he said, I was greatly afflicted. And I said in alarm, all men are vain, all men are vain. And there was that thought, wasn't there? There was the betrayer with him around that table. And the alarm would come forward. What's going to happen? But then he says in verse 12, What shall I render unto Yahweh for all these benefits toward me? What would he give back to his father for all the benefits that were laid upon him? He would give back to his father the very thing his father wanted for giving him those benefits. The father brought him into the world. The scripture is very plain. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, what will I give to Yahweh for all these benefits to me? He would give him back, brothers and sisters, what he really wanted. So he says, I will take the cup of salvation. Our Lord was a man, brothers and sisters. He really felt emotion. He actually cried. On one occasion, almost like blood coming out of him. And as he sat around that table and looked at those men and knew the traitor, there would be that feeling of alarm that men of vanity, vanity, he could see the shallowness of humankind. He could see the, the base ingratitude in humankind. He could see it all. But he steadied himself, didn't he? He thought about all the benefits that his father had given him and the reason they'd given him. He said, I will take the cup of salvation. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, in the same night in which he was betrayed, he took the cup. See the context? It wasn't as if, brothers and sisters, the cup was deserved by others. It wasn't as if he gave it as an act of, of, of appreciation of what they'd done for him. Oh no, in the same night in which he was betrayed, he took that cup. That's what that is saying here. Imagine Jesus singing this. Just imagine him. And then you come down to verse 18 and 19. I will pay my vows unto Yahweh now in the presence of all his people in the courts of Yahweh's house, in the midst of thee, O Jerusalem, praise Yahweh. Hallelujah. Hallel. And he would see, brothers and sisters, the day would come when he would pay his vow. How would he do that? Well, he tells us in Psalm 22, quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, he will do it in the midst of his brethren. In the midst of his brethren. And he will pay his vows to God and that all that God has given him, he's lost nothing. Here they all are. All that was in the purpose of God, there they are. And he'll pay his vows in the courts of, that, of the holiness of Yahweh and it'll be in Jerusalem. My peace I leave with you and it'll be Hallel, won't it, brothers and sisters? Well, in Psalm 117, a very short psalm, what's that about? It's, it's about his work among the nations. Quoted by Paul in Romans 15 for the work of Christ among the nations. Quoted by the Apostle to prove that this is the work of Christ among the nations. O praise Yahweh, all ye nations. A work, brothers and sisters, that would reach way beyond the confines of Israel. He died for the sins of all men. Whoever would could come and drink of the cup of salvation. 
Psalm 118. Oh, how wonderful was that? Messiah delivered out of the hand of his enemies, exalted to his father's right hand. The stone which the builders rejected had become the head of the corner. He quoted that for them, didn't he, brothers and sisters? And then we read in, in Psalm 118 and verse 26, we know this reference well, don't we? It says, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of Yahweh. And he said to the Jews, You won't see me, he said, until you'll sing that. You won't see me until you sing that. And that's the culmination of the Hallel. You think of that. You think of they come to the last crescendo of that psalm, all but three or four verses to the end. They start singing this. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of Yahweh and the heart of the Son of God would exalt, brothers and sisters, to hear those 11 men sing that and to know that they represented Israel and that they would come when all his people, the Jewish people, the Jewish people would surround him with those words and it was with those words ringing in his ears that he'd go out of that room. The Hallel. The Hallel. The portion of Messiah would be the last portion and that portion would include that and the people for whom he died, the people who slew him, and yet he died for them, would ultimately come back to him with absolute appreciation, their hearts broken because of what happened, and yet in deep appreciation of what God had done with him. And so verse 27 of Psalm 118 reads like this, Ail is Yahweh, the power is Yahweh, which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifices with cords even under the horns of the altar. And so the day is going to come, brothers and sisters, when that will be fulfilled, won't it? Bind the sacrificer with cords to the horns of the altar. And you see the altar, you know, and it had the horns out of each corner like that, didn't it? And when on the festival occasions when there was multiple offerings and they couldn't do them all at once, sometimes there was hundreds of them, they would dress the animal ready for, for burning upon the altar and they would slip the leather thong through its legs and hang them on the horns of the altar. And you would see, you'd see that altar up there with all these leather thongs hanging over, and the, all the animals hanging down and the horns sticking up between those leather thongs. And it wouldn't take much imagination to see a ram caught in a thicket. A ram, the leader of the flock, caught in a thicket, its horns enmeshed in a thicket. Caught! inexorably bound up in all that was going to do for his brethren. Inextricably, brothers and sisters, there's no way out of it for him at all. He's part of the race. He's under the dominion of death and he's there to lead everybody else out. They're all hanging on him, aren't they? And when he came out of that, on behalf of humanity, having saved himself, he saved all those hanging on him and it become a power in their life to the power of forgiveness. A wonderful figure, an absolute wonderful figure. And the Lord would be singing that hallel. Oh, give thanks unto Yahweh for his, he is good, his mercy endureth forever. And the last words as he went out that door with them to go across the city into the valley of the Kidron, in the darkness of the light, the last refrain, Oh, give thanks unto Yahweh for he is good, his mercy endureth forever. With that refrain, brothers and sisters, he said, Arise, let us go hence.